0: as we get to the point, all right? How many of you brought your Bible or your phone or your tablet? Get it out, all right? Here we go. We're a Bible church. Hold it up. Let me see your Bible or your phone or your tablet or something. All right, that looks good. Find the book of Galatians, okay? Galatians chapter 3. We're going to finish up the third chapter today uh, quickly looking at verses 15 through verse 29. Galatians chapter 3 verse 15 through 29, in a message today that I have entitled, Promise Kept. Promise Kept. God keeps His promises. God has never lied. God will never let you down. God will never tell you that He is going to do something and then not follow through on what He said He would do. When I was growing up, my father drilled into us on a regular basis, son, remember your name. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. You're a Christian, but you're a Coleman, all right? So when you're out on Friday and Saturday night, don't you forget your name. Son, be a man of your word. If you say you're gonna do something, follow through on it. Don't make promises that you can't keep. I'm glad to tell you God has never made a promise that he has not kept. Now, in the context of Galatians chapter 3 verse 15, Paul is speaking here in the first verse by example. He's speaking about a man-made covenant. I want you to just to look at that one verse, one verse to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, he's speaking here of something that I think we all understand, this matter of wills and covenants. A preacher told me uh, several years ago, many years ago, he said, Son, one thing you'll learn is that you'll find out who the troublemakers are in the family when you have a wedding or you have a funeral. And in 31 years, not every single time, but several times, I have found that to be true. When you think about someone that passes away, the question is going to get asked, who's getting what? And in that moment, sometimes uh, there is some tension. Some of you don't raise your hand, don't respond. You have been in situations like that uh, where uh, you get caught in uh, having to make those decisions it's a moment like that where many times uh, there's uh, a realization of the family and who's really trusted. And then there's another realization for some where they realize that there is a a stark reality of the repercussions of bad behavior all of the years. And sometimes those revealings and the divvying out is, is not a pretty sight. Somebody can say, oh me or amen right there. I read about a Christian lady recently who had a pretty good bit of money, a lot of means, and she had made her decision that she was going to leave all of her stuff, all of her belongings, she was going to leave that uh, to a Christian university. And so when she passed away and her legal representation opened up the will and it was read to the family, there was a lot of heartburn among her children. They wanted to know who had tricked her, who had duped her into writing out this will. And so they went through a legal process, and they read everything, and all the procedures were followed, and her promises that she had made to this Christian university were followed through. When we think about the grace of God today and staying with the grace of God, we are reminded of a promise that was kept. A promise that was kept. The grace of God reminds us that God keeps his word. This life is really all about grace. A uh, Pastor Don Coker, a member of our church, many of you know Pastor Don. I talked to him on the phone Friday, I guess it was. I didn't see him in the first service today, but he was just sharing with me that the last twelve days have been wonderful for him. If you know anything about his journey, uh, he has been in excruciating pain and going through a lot physically, facing another back surgery. And he's been doing so well that he actually called the doctors and said, "I'm going to put this off because my pain has subsided." Can we praise God for that? There's a lot of people praying over, been praying over him. And uh, Pastor Don uh, is just praising the Lord for His mercy and grace in His life. But when Pastor Don sends you an email, he always signs it down at the bottom: "Living in Graceland, living in Graceland." And we're not talking about where Elvis is from, all right? What he's saying is, this life, this life, I'm living in the grace and the mercy of the Lord. That's why Robert Louis Stevenson put it this way. He said, there is nothing, there is nothing but God's grace. We walk upon it. We breathe it. We live. We die by it. It makes the nails and axles of the universe. Unless you think Stevenson was just sitting down a randomly writing this. I believe there's a very strong scriptural uh, background for this in Colossians chapter 1, where it literally says Jesus is the one who holds it all together. How many of you have experienced Jesus holding you together when you couldn't hold yourself together? He holds the world together. How does He do that? He does it by His grace. Now, in this first verse, I want you to think about the context of what Paul says about this matter of man-made covenants. In this time, if there would have been a Roman covenant or a Roman will that would have been written, it could be torn up or changed at any time. So think about this. A man uh, could take a will for who was going to get what in his family. He could have ripped it up in anger one day just because he was mad at somebody, and he could have started over and written a new will. It could be changed or ratified at any time. But in the Greek culture, it was right the opposite. If you were going to make a will, you had better sit down, think it through, uh, weigh it out, and understand that when the insignia or the seal Was placed upon that will and it was filed uh, with the local government, it could not be changed and it could not be repealed. There's another little aspect here from the Jewish perspective of what is known as the Jewish inheritance covenant. It was a little bit different, and we can see that in the story in Luke chapter 15 of the story of the two sons. Most of us know it as the story of the prodigal son. Years ago, Tim Keller wrote a book entitled The Prodigal God to say that the story is really not about the son. The story is really about the father who pours out grace, right? He lavishes his, both of his sons, actually, he lavishes them with grace. And in that story, we see that this young lad comes to his father, and in that moment, the father made a decision to give him a portion of his inheritance. We don't know exactly what Paul is referring to here of those three things, but it certainly seems like that he may be referring to the Greek covenant or the Greek will, in that it would not be changed. He's saying here, I want to use this as an example to talk about what God has done. So, so if you're going to take notes today, I want you to see, first of all, that we can rest in the promise of God. We can rest in the promise of God in that the promises that God makes, he never ratifies, he never changes, he never tears it up, he never goes back on his word. You can rest in the promise of God. Look in the verse, verse number 16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is, say it with me, church, Christ. Notice it does not say, who is Isaac, but it says, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now notice there how many times the word promise is used. It's used about eight times. The promise of God, the promise of God. The law came 430 years later, but it did not nullify or void the promise of God. What is the promise of God? William Barclay said, Jesus is the yes to every promise of God. I love that. Jesus is the yes to every promise of God. So today, we are resting in the promise of God that was given to Abraham 430 years before the law. Now, we're gonna get to the law in just a minute and what place it has and how we look at the law, how we use the law, but let's start with the promise God made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, look on the screen. God comes to Abraham and he has a blood covenant ceremony with Abraham. Abraham, bring me a heifer, three years old a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a younger pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half. He laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. So he makes the preparation for this ceremony of the blood covenant. Fast forward, when the sun had gone down, verse number 17, and it was dark behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, here it is, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So what does God do? Watch this he prepares this moment of the blood covenant. He passes through as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. The Bible says that he actually put Abraham to sleep. Abraham did not pass through on the blood covenant ceremony because this covenant is all about God's promise. Remember, this promise is unconditional. There are promises in the Old Testament that are conditional. God says, hey, if you do this, I'm gonna do this. There are others that are unconditional. There are no conditions placed on Abraham as Abraham does not even pass between the pieces. But God passes through and he makes this covenant with Abraham. Abraham, I am going to give you the land. Now here you and I are in 2022 and I believe the covenant of the land is still valid today But you and I know that this covenant is not just about the land. This covenant is about the Lord. This covenant is about Jesus. The offspring here is Christ. Paul says it, did he not? To your offspring who is Christ. Aren't you thankful today that you and I are not judged based on our performance, but we are judged based on the promise. The promise of Jesus. The promise of the Messiah. Christ has come. The message for you and I today in this text is, yes, Christological in that Jesus has come, but church, we need to hear this today in this crazy, mixed-up, divisive world that we can still rest in the promises of God we can rest in the promises of God. When you're a child of God, you can rest in his promises. So Paul starts as he's dealing with the Judaizers, right? The Judaizers are all law. No, you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you might be a Christian, or Jesus might be the Messiah, but you've still got to be circumcised. Paul begins by reminding them of something that we need to be reminded of today. There are too many people Who are trying or attempting to work their way to heaven? Let me put it this way. There are too many people that have their eyes on Moses and they need to get it on Abraham. They've got their eyes on the law. When God says, put your eyes on the promise, the promise, the promise is Jesus. Number two, let's look at the law. Can we do that? Number two, I want you to see or remember the purpose of the law. There is a purpose. Now now watch, Abraham had faith and it was counted to him for righteousness, but that law did not come until four centuries after he had already passed away, yet he still had faith. He still believed in God. So today, we got to answer the question, what is the purpose of the law? Does anybody in the room remember what Jesus said in his earthly ministry? He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but rather I came to fulfill the law. So in other words, the law is necessary, the law is needed, but what is it needed for? Well, he asked that question in verse 19. Look in your Bible. He asked the question to the Galatian Christians. So why then the law? What's the purpose? It was added because of transgressions. That word there is trespasses. You're a trespasser. And this trespassing here is not about land or property. This trespassing here is trespassing against a holy and a righteous God. It's the first cousin to the word sin, right? That we are all sinners. What does the law do? It, it it's, it's added because we are sinners. It shows us that we need a savior. Notice, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. It's talking again about the law. How many of you here in our study in Hebrews? Wave at me. Come on, wave at me. We studied through the book of Hebrews. How many of you remember that? All right, it's like two of you. All the sermons are online. Hebrews chapter 2. We really dug into this. We went back to Exodus and we saw that the law came to Moses through the angels, okay? God through the angels to Moses to the people, and so Paul's just reminding them there was there was a process here by which they came. But now that Christ has come, verse twenty, now and in a media area implies more than one, but God is one. Verse twenty-one is the law then contrary to the promises of God. Notice the, the tone here. Notice his response. He answers his own question. Is the law contrary to the promises? No, no, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ Might be given to those who believe. So, what is the purpose of the law? The law was given to us to show us how big God is and how little we are. The law was given to us not as a a list of rules and regulations that we have to get on a hamster wheel. And you're running and you're trying to keep them all, and you realize you broke one. I gave you a couple of illustrations a couple of weeks ago. You know, what about building a fire on the Sabbath day when it's 40 below and you're going to die of hypothermia? Or what about, you know, the clothes? Some of you today have got on cotton and wool blend clothes in the room and, and you violated the law. How many of you are guilty of that right now? Probably everybody in the room, right? And so we're all just worried about what are we doing? What are we not doing? Christ comes not to abolish that law, but to fulfill it. He comes to say, you can't measure up. You you can't keep all of those. So what does that cause us to do? I love what Augustine of Hippo said in the early centuries. Look on the screen. Here's what he said. He said, the law was given in order to convert a great into a little man, to show that you have no power of your own for righteousness. You can't do it. You can't be good enough. You, you, you're not a self-made man or woman, okay? You're not strong enough. You can't produce your own righteousness. But it might thus, poor, needy, and destitute, say those last three words with me, would you? Flee, come on, say it. Flee, flee to the grace of and the mercy of Jesus. So the law is there for us to look at and to realize, like an x-ray machine, how broken and sinful we are that we can't fix our problems. We can't keep all of those rules and regulations, and it causes us to run to Jesus. If you try to go this route of keeping the law You are in essence making faith and the promise void. Look at what Paul says in another passage about this. The book of Romans, chapter 4, verse number 13. Paul said, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. In other words, the law doesn't make you righteous. Only Jesus can make you righteous. So, so look, you got to turn loose. you got to turn loose of the hamster wheel of do, the hamster wheel of religion, the hamster wheel of works the hamster wheel of sacraments, and I could go on and on and on, the hamster wheel. You've got to turn loose, and you've got to flee to the grace of Jesus. You've got to believe. You've got to believe that salvation is not in you. Salvation is not in what you can do, but salvation is in Christ and what Christ has already done. Can I finish up my sermon today just bragging on Jesus? If that's okay, would you say amen? Can we just brag on Jesus for a minute? Number three, in the promise kept, we rejoice in the person of Christ. That Christ came to us. Specific revelation, Christ came, the God-man. He came to us. Notice verse 23 Paul says now, now, now. Things are different now. That word now changes things, right? Some of you are over here, the Judaizers are trying to get you to go back to circumcision and and dietary laws and so many other things, but now, now. Now things are different. What's different now? Now before faith came. Now, faith, again, did not begin at the crucifixion, because we know Abraham had faith. He was a man of faith. He believed God. In the context here, Paul is saying faith in Christ. Now that faith in Christ has come, remember, we're only 14 or 15 years removed from the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And Paul is pointing back, and he's saying the Messiah came. Jesus died. He shed his blood. Now things are different. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now take your Bible here, circle that word guardian, all right? Will you do that? Just circle that word guardian. And I want you to think of it. He uses the words of being in prison, right? You're in jail think about I'm the jailer, right? You're sitting in the cell and I'm watching over you. I'm making sure you don't escape. I'm making sure you behave uh, and that you, you don't get outside the boundaries of the jail. Now let's flip that around for just a minute and just think that there are some benefits from being in jail. Hopefully you haven't experienced that lately, but if you have, you might know that you get fed there, right? You get some food. Which food keeps you going? You have a place to sleep. There might be a a bed there for you to to lay down. You're protected. You're protected from the elements. Uh, You're protected from other criminals. I want you to think about this for just a minute uh, in light of the Apostle Paul. Paul was thrown in prison. If you've read your Bible in the New Testament, you know that while he was in prison, there was a bounty put on him. They wanted to kill him. There was this secret plot. When the plot was uncovered, what happened? even though he was a prisoner, he got a whole bunch of dudes to guard him. Uh, He had like the royal police uh, watching out over him and making sure that he was safe until uh, he got uh, to Rome. And so there was some benefits for him being incarcerated in that moment in that he had a security detail. But Paul uses this word guardian, which is an interesting word, because in the original language, the word is pedagogue pedagogue. And in the Greek culture, that was basically a slave that was designated to be a babysitter or a chaperone for a wealthy Greek family. So a Greek family would have a pedagogue uh, who would basically live with them, do life with them, watch over the kids, make sure they were where they were supposed to be. They were really just like giving a given parental authority a matter of fact, if you go back and look in history and you study those early centuries of pedagogue, you'll find that the art of a pedagogue is actually someone holding a rod or a stick to signify that they would administer punishment to any of the children that got out of line. That's a sermon for another day that I'll get back to but a family had a pedagogue. So watch, Paul is painting this picture in, your mind, in their mind that this is an added member of the family that's watching out over you to make sure you behave. And he compares this to the law. What is the law for? It is just our guardian to hold on and keep us in place until when? Until Jesus Christ came. Keep reading in verse 25. But now that faith has come, We are no longer under a guardian. Can we say amen right there? We're no longer under the weight of the law. We are free. We'll get back to freedom in chapter 5. We are free. We are free because of the grace and mercy of the Lord. The law is no longer our guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through what? Through what? The word is these. The word is faith. The word is trusting, believing that you are a son of God. Why are you a son of God? You're not a son of God because you got your name on the church roll. You are not a son of God because you've been circumcised. You are not a son of God because you have taken a communion with the body. You are not a son of God because you've been baptized. I say all that because baptism is in the next verse, and I'm going to address that, but I want to stop right here and remind all of us that if you are a child of God, you're a son of God, you are because you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul fleshes that out a little more in Romans chapter 10. He said, If you believe with all your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Paul reminds them how they came into the family of God. There's nothing you can do to, uh, works-wise to get into the family. There's nothing you can do after you get into the family that makes you more spiritual. You're a child of God because you believe and you trust. You trust. How many of you thankful today There's nothing you can do that would make God love you more, nothing you could do that would make him love you less. You're just his child. You're his child, right? You're a son of God, and that happened through faith. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Put on Christ. How do you put on Christ? That's the righteousness of Christ. It's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness. We put on Christ when we are baptized into Christ. Let me say a word about this verse. You see in the Bible and in the earlier centuries of the church, there was a really strong emphasis on those who believed and received Christ to get baptized. Uh, Maybe a few minutes ago when I, I mentioned that about the Baptist faith and message of 2000, about you have to be saved and baptized in order to participate at the Lord's table, it would be our belief that if you refuse to get baptized, that you're living in disobedience. If we believe baptism is something you ought to do um, when you get saved, you ought to want to get baptized. There's a want to in you. I want to obey the Lord, as opposed to saying, no, I'm going to do it on my own time, my own way, and I'll figure it out. Uh, so so there's this matter of obedience to the Lord. And so that's why we say you ought to be baptized because we are Baptists, <laughs> the baptizers. And we believe that it is a public identification of your personal relationship with Christ. You, again, as you read through the New Testament, you see places like in the book of Acts where Peter looks at a group of people and he says, how can we take these who have received Christ, they received the Holy Spirit, how can we forbid them from being baptized? That's a very important statement because I remind you that baptism does not save you. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 21, he uses the words there, does baptism deliver you? And then he clarifies that by saying, not the washing away of the filth of the flesh or not the washing away of your sins. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away your sins there is a spiritual baptism. It's mentioned in several places in the New Testament. Probably ought to preach a whole sermon on this sometime. But there's a spiritual baptism of where you are in Christ and Christ is in you. I'm afraid maybe in our southern churchy culture that we've maybe got some people to make decisions who we've not fully explained what it means to be in Christ. The word baptism means that you are immersed So I just want to ask you today, I want to ask all of you, is your life immersed in Christ? Have you been baptized into Christ? Spiritually speaking, are you immersed with Jesus? Not water baptism in a baptistry. I'm talking about the life that you live. Christ is in you and you are in Christ. If you're a son of God, how many of you believe that makes a difference? It does. It makes a difference. So evaluate yourself. If you've been baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ, which means that you have received the righteousness of Christ. I love verse 28. Verse 28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know what verse 28 just screams? It screams, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's what it screams. I want you to think about the Jews and the Gentiles. There's some rabbis who have written about some prayers that Jews prayed in the early centuries, and they would pray prayers that went like this. God, I just want to thank you that I'm not like the Gentiles. Can you think of a more snobbery prayer to pray than that? God, I just want to thank you I'm not like them. And let me pause for just a minute and say what would make us think that we couldn't have that kind of pride in our own hearts. Yeah, the ground, hey, gang, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is, listen, we we divide over ethnicity, melatonin, so many other, melanin, not melatonin. That's That's what I take to sleep. We divide over melanin. We divide over ethnicity. We divide over culture. The body of Christ is one. But you know what we do? We try to take worldly systems and force it in on the one. Christianity, we're one. We're one. We are one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Now let me say this about that in this crazy world of things that are being said about what a male is and what a female is and what, a, what, what role men have and what role women have. God's word is very clear about that. Don't try to make rules for church polity in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. Paul is talking here about justification. He's talking about salvation there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free. We are one in Christ. Salvation is free to all who will come to him. The question that we wrap up with in verse 29 is the question that we all must wrestle with. We all must wrestle with. Paul says, and if you are Christ. So I just ask you that question, He's not really in a question form there in that phrase, but I'm asking you that as a question. Are you today in Christ? Are you? If you are, read yourself into the rest of that verse. Then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to, there's that word again, say it with me. Promise. A promise kept. How many of you just? Uh, I told the early service this. How many of you get a little tingly when you're reading your Bible? Uh, how many of you were younger? You you uh, you were like me. You you wanted to see what it was like to stick your tongue on a nine volt battery. Anybody ever do that? Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty pretty dumb, isn't it? You get that mm, that buzz. And, and and I'm I'm being serious here for just a minute. How many of you? How many of you? When you're reading through your Bible and you read a verse like that and you realize that's you, I mean, that's you. It just blesses you that we are the recipient of the promise. Christ came. We are the recipient of Abraham's promise, Abraham's offspring. And now, here we go. We're back to that will thing, all right? Back to that will thing. Now we are, now that, that perks people up and gets their ears, that gets their attention. You're, you're an heir to something. What am I an heir to? We're an heir to all the promises of Christ and eternal life. Can we say amen to that? So let me just remind you today as I close, they say there are about 33,000 promises of God in the scripture. Promises. In the late 1800s, there was a man, he was actually in the military uh, and, and did well in the military, and then he got sick, got sick in his body. And so he had to have a life change, and he had to alter his career, and he went over into the medical field and began to, to practice medicine. And one day, he sat down, and he wrote a song about his life. He was going through a hard season where he just couldn't figure out, you know, what was going to happen, what do I do? And so he sat down and he wrote the words to the hymn that many of you have sung in church through the years, standing on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages let his praises ring. Glory in the highest. I will shout and I will sing. Say it with me. Standing on the promises of God. In this mixed-up world, remind yourself this week of a promise kept, and remind yourself this week that you can stand on the promises of God. And all God's people said,